Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, welcome to Project Recovery. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Woolley. Uh, and that right over there is our good buddy and probably the handsomest guy I know, Josh Tilton. How you doing, Josh? Uh, I'm doing so good. That is not true, but I appreciate it. <laughs> You're producing the heck out of the show today. Yeah. Appreciate you. And we're missing somebody. The The chair over to my right is empty. Our good buddy, Casey. Uh, is missing. What did did he just not show up, or did did he tell you? He sent us a text uh, that he wasn't going to be able to be here today, which is fine. That's totally okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he said it was for work, which in my mind that's like meeting clients and and well, it was traveling something. He was yeah, going to travel yeah. out of town for work. Sounds a little suspect to me because <laughs> when he works, you know, that really just means he's golfing with well, people. Well, when when I walked you know. in, you're like. What is Casey doing? I'm like, he's doing work stuff. You know, he's just kind of being Casey <laughs> sure, Scott. Yeah. And you're like, no, he's golfing. And I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah, he's he golfing. probably is golfing. Well, we'll find out next week when he comes back. Uh, but we're going to – we'll miss Casey. But I think we have some fun stuff to talk about today. Um, you know, we could have just run a rerun, you know, as they say in the old TV days, a rerun. But uh, instead, I thought we'd get together and talk about some good stuff. Later, I want to talk about some stories, some people's stories and and kind of the key to why some people are more successful than others and what we can do to kind of model that for ourselves. But right now, I was reading through JAMA. Do you know what JAMA is? I don't. I've never That's a fun it. way to say the Journal of American Medical Association, oh, JAMA. Yeah. That's not on my coffee table. <clears throat> it's not? Oh, no. Well, it will be now, but it's Yeah, not. it should be. Uh, but uh, an interesting article I came across that just was published recently uh, talks about the fact that decreasing – the amount of alcohol one drinks also decreases their risk for cancer, but not just a little bit, a lot. And I read through it. I learned some good stuff. I didn't realize how much higher your risk of cancer is if you're drinking alcohol regularly uh, versus not drinking it regularly. We usually think of like smoking, you know, those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, actually worldwide – 4% 4% of newly diagnosed cancers are alcohol-related, and, and it's higher in the U.S. It's 5%. So that that's, represents a lot of people that uh, because of their regular alcohol use. And it actually breaks down to types of cancer. I didn't know this either. But things like you know oral mouth cancers, 45% of those are alcohol-related. Um, 
And uh, 12% of uh, women's breast cancers are alcohol-related, believe it or not. Now, is there like a threshold for that? Like X amount of drinks over X amount of period? Will so lead the to... way they're, they're measuring that is it's, it's the heavy drinking is three alcoholic beverages per day or more. Okay. And we would definitely call that, you know, pretty heavy alcohol use. However, I don't think that's that uncommon. I think no. a lot of people... And that's an average, so you know it might be zero one day and six the next day. But if you're regularly drinking alcohol with you know like three about three drinks per day on average, then you significantly increase your risk for cancer overall. And specific cancers can be pretty out there. You want to avoid the colorectal cancer, but that you increase that by eleven percent if you're drinking regularly. Wow. Yeah, that's not a cancer you want to get. You know, a lot of times on the show we talk about, um, you know, people in recovery and they're not using or drinking at all, which is great, uh, but even just decreasing. So the study goes on to show that uh, just by decreasing your, the amount of drinking you're doing by about half makes a significant decrease in your risk for cancer uh, over time. So that's good. It'd be awesome if we started every show with, with a little fun facts in the in the news in the news yeah 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 I like doing that I don't know I I mean maybe the listeners can give us some feedback if they'd like that I'm all down for that but um, I don't know if if people sometimes people find the science facts a little boring but I think it's good to know and it's like hey if you were before listening to the show today if you were thinking oh do I have a reason to decrease my drinking well there's one yeah I, I'm I'm hoping most most people who are Kind of self-aware of whether or not they have a problem. If that could push them to to getting recovery, that'd be awesome. Uh, well, I actually think that's a huge problem. A lot of people are in denial. Uh, we've talked about those stages of change. People are in that pre-contemplative state where they're not really even thinking about it. You know, yeah. it's like, hey, this is my way to relax after work, or you know, it's just what I you know I, I do. Uh, but a lot of people, the the way to start. Okay, I'll tell you how to start. If you want to know, do I have a drinking problem? I would start by taking a, a few weeks and write down every day the amount of alcohol you drink. Just don't change anything you do. Just record it. Just, you know, write down like I had three cocktails or I had four beers or, you know, just write it down in the notes on your phone, make it easy on you, and then go back and add it up and then compare that to what they say stats-wise. You know, in this case, they were using three alcoholic beverages per day. And so that could be a glass of wine, a beer, and a cocktail. It doesn't have to be the same thing um, that you are putting yourself at, in this study's eyes, at very high risk for cancer overall and specific cancers for sure. Um, but a lot, you know, that's the, the, the moving yourself from that pre contemplative where I'm just not really thinking about it, maybe I'm in denial, to like, oh, I should really start thinking about making some changes. You have to have self-awareness, and that's a good way to do it is, um, you know, start just recording it. Do a little journaling. Do you ever do that with uh, other stuff like how much uh, – I mean, you don't drink soda, but like, you know, a lot of people – I don't know if you've noticed in the state of Utah that soda Oh, it's very miss, popular. actually, yeah. yeah. It's a multi-million dollar yeah. uh, business with all the drive throughs and fancy soda places. So you could – if you're not an alcohol drinker, do it with your soda intake. You know, what, I don't know if Utah's ready for that. <laughs> we might self-combust. Yeah, well, it would drive a few places out of business if we really did. But um, I've gotten off soda. Um, I like to. I've switched over to those. I used to think they're gross, but like just the carbonated, slightly flavored water, uh, like Lacroix, LaCroix. or 
um, what's the new one? The the Waterloo's. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's gotten me off soda, and I feel way better. I yeah, that that soda is not good for you. Yeah. Well, hey, you know what I really want to do today is after we come back from our break. Uh, I want to tell you some stories. Do you like stories? I love stories. We talk about stories all the time. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to relay some personal stories and then talk about maybe what these stories have in common. And it's a a concept, a a psychological structure that anybody can capture, successful people capture it on a regular basis. It's sort of the cornerstone of happiness, uh, which motivates people to make good changes in their lives. So We're going to talk about that right after this. You're listening to Project Recovery. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Uh, I'm Dr. Matt Woolley. That's Josh Tilton, our wonderful producer. And we're missing out on Casey today because he's off doing work. I'm using air quotes work-related things, uh, I think that means schmoozing people on the golf course. I'm not sure. We'll quiz him when he gets back, see if he has a decent answer for why he took off on us. Yeah, we should take bets, and our listeners should partake on whether he did good or bad on yes. the golf course. <laughs> well, he'll tell you he did good. Um, he'll but, say something about a handicap or something. Yeah, so. he'll start with the jargon. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's – so we miss you, Casey. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, uh, I wanted to tell you some stories. I like stories, and that's actually one of my favorite um, reasons that, you know, th- that I keep coming back and doing the show is we get to hear these personal stories from people all the time. And if you like stories, um, I, I don't – I'm not affiliated. None of us are affiliated with this group. But Faces and Voices of Recovery, you can go online and they um, – record people's uh, stories. Most of them are rather short, but it's a place if you need a little inspiration. Most of them are uh, just like people on our show in recovery. And so I thought what I'd do is just read through a few. I've picked a few. I actually got kind of hooked on it. Uh, the other night I was uh, got busy reading a bunch of different people's stories because um, that's kind of fun, uh, just like listening to our show. Um, but... Um, here we go. Let's read a few stories. And then I want to talk about kind of what I feel like they have in common. And it's a principle that we can all use to be happier and to make positive changes. So this is, I'm just, uh, these are all public domain. So I'll just use the person's name, Angela. This is Angela's story. She says, hello, my name is Angela and I have been in recovery since October, 2007, which means I have not had a drink or used drugs in over eight years. 
She helped us with the math there. It's actually a lot more than that now. But uh, since my commitment to recovery, I've successfully completed court-ordered treatment programs as well as probation. I've also enrolled in Penn State for psychology with a business option and have been recently accepted into the Honor Roll Society with a business option, Josh. Now, maybe that's why I don't have a boat because when I went through psychology, I didn't realize there was a business option. Yeah, you not just overlooked that. Yeah, or, somehow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Or maybe they didn't think I was good for the business. Option. I think I overlooked it too, doing yeah, pr- production. I should maybe go back to school. Yeah. Penn State's impressive, though. That's where uh, the hub of positive psychology comes from. So that's pretty cool. Uh, this past June, I passed my state boards, and I'm now a certified recovery specialist. I'm currently employed as an assistant counselor at a drug and alcohol outpatient clinic that also treats gambling addiction. That's another thing we need to have more of on the show it's, is talking were, about gambling. It's been hard. It's been yeah. – I don't know if the listeners know or if any of the listeners have people in uh, you know recovery for gambling that would like to come on. But it's been tough it's to tough. find counselors or anybody that does that. Maybe we should call Angela up. Yeah. And she says, my biggest gift of recovery is my ability to be a mother to my children, which is a sweet way to end her little vignette here uh, about her story. But what I think is cool here is that, you know, she's uh, put together a lot of years of recovery and done good things with them. So that's that's a key. That's something to hold on to. That's a, that's a cute story. Here's another good story. Um, now, this one, this guy's name is also Casey. This is not our beloved C Money. Are we sure? Yeah. We're pretty, well, this guy looks pretty uh, slick. He's wearing a suit. I've never seen Casey oh my, wear a suit. Yeah. Have you seen? Have you ever? Our, our seen podcast him in a tie? Would get the same downloads as Joe we, Rogan. We should take bets on whether he owns a tie. Do you think he owns one tie for like funerals and weddings? Uh, I bet he doesn't even wear a tie to weddings. Maybe a funeral. We can bet on it, but it has to be in the open. Like it has to be <laughs> hanging up in the closet. It can't it can't be in a box or a tub somewhere. Okay, fair enough. Well, this guy says, my name is Casey and I'm in long-term recovery, which means for me that I have not used a drug or alcohol in over 20 years. I found recovery at the age of 21 years while serving a three to 10 year prison sentence. I was arrested on the steps of a law school at age 19 with a large amount of cocaine in my book bag. When you went back to school, did you remember to stock up on cocaine or just uh, pencils and notebooks? I'll tell you what. This podcast has introduced <laughs> me to a life that I have not been familiar with. So I, 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 I miss that. People are living different lives. That's yep. for sure. So he had a large amount of cocaine in his book bag. For some reason, he had the good judgment to hang around a law school while he had that. Maybe that was where he sold it. I don't know. Come on. As a result of finding recovery, I graduated from that law school at the top overall, as the top overall student in my class. Wow. Yeah. And then today I practice law in the same courtroom I was convicted and sentenced in. Wow. I think that's kind of cool. Why do we uh, get these people on the show? Bringing it full circle, right? Yeah. None of this would have occurred but for this amazing gift and many amazing people in recovery. And I think that's also a big theme of the people that come in our show is – uh, the support that they receive. But I think this is a really cool um, story of, of doing a 180, you know, bringing it back and actually doing uh, good stuff in the very place where he got sentenced. But I want to read one more and then we're going to talk about how to be happy and, and motivate ourselves uh, to make positive changes. This is Carrie. She says, I'm a woman in long-term recovery. In less than two weeks, I will celebrate eight years of recovery and my life is forever changed for the better because of my disease and the lessons I have learned in recovery. I liked how she put that. It's been yep. changed for the better because of my disease, not in spite of my disease. Yeah. 
which is, I think, something a lot of people on our show bring up uh, as well. I'm truly grateful to be in long-term recovery and continue to be amazed by all the blessings. My use of opioids began with my own prescription medication but quickly engulfed my life. That's a common theme, right? You have a surgery and you get hooked. When I crossed my morals and boundaries to feed my addiction, also another common theme. Um, I attempted uh, recovery in 2001 and achieved several years clean through treatment and ongoing support, including monitoring. But as a healthcare provider, more specifically a nurse, I had not dealt with the deep shame and guilt of my use, which festered like an abscess below the surface. She's she's Great a good writer. writer. Yeah, yeah, that was well well written. But that's another thing. Healthcare workers often fall into the trap of the of prescription drug use and abuse. I relapsed in 2009, experiencing significant consequences and losses, including jobs, my nursing license, my insurance, etc., which could have derailed my success. But through willingness to do everything to recover, I surrounded myself with those who loved and supported me. I did everything those in recovery and my treating professionals urged me to do, including talking about the secrets I had, de- had held deep and was afraid to let anyone hear. So I think that's a pretty neat thing. And I think um, all of us in healthcare, we don't want to portray weakness. Like a a nurse, a doctor, a a therapist, I think we want to come in and say, I'm here to help you. But so I think it's very hard for healthcare professionals to actually talk about their weaknesses or their, the the shameful things that maybe they've done. Uh, How do you think we fix that? Let, like that, let them be more vulnerable. Obviously, it's a broader issue, and a lot of people struggle with that. But um, I think it's focusing more on the fact that owning your disease, owning mm. owning it, helps you become a better person. Instead of having a disease, means you're a lesser person, right, or a lesser professional, um, which we talk about all the time. Yeah, we talk about that. We've had some great guests on the on the show. She says, "Today, I'm a licensed nurse and addiction counselor." Director and proud advocate for recovery, I offer healing and hope to other healthcare professionals. So that's that's having healthcare professionals treat healthcare professionals, and kind of give them that example is is um, is really a, a good way to recover. You know, to move forward and have people be more open and about what's going on for them. I proudly share my recovery story publicly, so that no other person, especially a nurse, may die without knowing recovery and that a better way of living is possible. So that's thank you, Carrie, for sharing your story. I think that is neat. And we have these three great examples, lots of different things I think we could you know, point out um, that they have in common. But the thing I, I, that made me start thinking was, well, they all kind of talk about having support and working hard, and we see that as a theme in, in recovery. And it reminded me of the concept of flow. Are you familiar with um, – with the concept of flow. Is that like the flow state where you get into like mm-hmm. a state of production and kind of mindfulness where you're just kind of mm-hmm. operating it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you you guys, guys your age know all about that. Guys my age, we grew up not really knowing about that, even though- Even though you would be in flow state fairly often. Yeah, yeah. In fact, maybe a lot of people find it in uh, young life experiences like sports or yep. music where you're in kind of- um, in sports, we'd call it being in the zone, right? Yeah. In the zone. Um, and uh, the late Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is his name. He's a Polish psychologist, one of my favorite psychologists. 
uh, was the was the fellow who who coined the phrase and started doing the research that kind of brought this about. But he, I want, well, let me let me tell you his definition first. The state of flow is defined as a state of focused contentment in which one is fully immersed and energized. Essentially, being in a flow state means doing, uh, being in the zone and getting lost in what you're doing. So the result is usually people are pretty successful. The outcomes are successful because they're in that flow state. But um, it's interesting. So he came, so he was a Polish uh, psychologist, but he grew up as a little kid in the aftermath of World War II. And I think, you know, Poland probably got it worse than anybody, got it first and got it worse uh, in World War II. And and, uh, he noticed growing up that the adults around him, you know, he's a pre-adolescent kid growing up in the aftermath of, of World War II. Uh, some of them recovered pretty well, and and some of them didn't. In fact, he, he tells a story of, of watching this uh, person in his town, a, a business owner, a shop owner, was uh, sweeping off the front of the shop, you know, getting things ready, uh, opening up. But the back of the shop had been blown off by attacks. So it was a partial building. But this guy wasn't going to let that stop him. He was going to open. He was going to be open for business, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, a lot of people never were able to recover. They weren't out there trying to to make life happen again for themselves and their families. And so he was intrigued by that. I think just as a kid, he was like, "Oh, what's the difference? Why are some of these adults around me, you know, getting back to to work, and some of them aren't? And what's the difference?" Anyway, long story short, he grows up and becomes interested in psychology, but not necessarily in psychological disorders, more in like what makes people successful, what makes people happy, what makes people motivated. And they did this great study uh, where they they got hundreds of people and they gave them pagers. Remember pagers back in the day? <laughs> I've seen it in movies. <laughs> in movies, yeah. I still have Sorry. a pager in my desk drawer at the <laughs> U. Uh but yeah, the the pagers, uh, he, they gave everybody pagers and notebooks. And randomly, these pagers would go off during the day and the person was to write down what they were doing and then rate their satisfaction and happiness on what they were doing at the time. And so, you know, at the end of the study, each person had a notebook full of these kind of random experiences and how they felt about what they were doing. All right. And so they went through and they they, you know, quantified and qualified all the data and put it together. And then they went back and interviewed people. And uh, in the process of interviewing them, they they were just kind of saying, hey, you said, you know, here was kind of low, here was kind of high. There seems to be this theme in your journal. What do you think about it? And uh, it was interesting that most of the people kind of came up with different answers about like, well, when I was actively engaged in something that was challenging, when I felt supported in what I was doing, and even though it was a challenge, I sort of had this internal feeling I could, I could be successful. Then I would, uh, I would just get lost in the activity, and uh, time would sort of stand still. Other people didn't feel like that they were that important. I was just so engrossed in what I was doing. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't distracted. And I really, I think that's you know, the the experience. And and you know, when he was interviewing different people. He was interviewing a jazz musician and this, uh, in true jazz musician style, he, he explained all of that. And then he said, you know, man, it's just like when everything flows, 
right? That's a very jazz guy thing to say. And and uh, Dr. Csikszentmihalyi really liked that. And so that's how the, the term got its name. But uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So lo- what did they find in their study about flow? It's a nice concept. We've all been in the zone or at least, you know, when you're in eighth grade, you think you're in the zone playing basketball. You're really not Michael Jordan, but you think you are. But you just get lost in those experiences. And uh, they they came up with nine factors that uh, if, if these nine factors are present, you're likely to be in flow. Number one was intense and focused concentration on the present moment. So uh, this was before the term mindfulness got really popular, but that's essentially what they're talking about there. Number two is merging of action and awareness. So you're aware of what you're doing and you're actively engaged. Number three, a loss of reflective self-consciousness. That's really important because that's one of the things that holds all of us back from performing in different ways is we get overly self-conscious. And so that that goes away. Number four, a sense of personal control or agency over the activity. So even though it's a challenge, you don't feel out of control. You feel like, I could do this, you know. Uh, I feel like the, that my efforts are going to pay off. Uh, number five, a distortion of the subjective experience of time. So that's a fancy way of saying time stands still. Think of the Rush song. That was a fancy um, way of saying it. was a fancy. Well, yeah, he was a yeah. fancy guy. That's true. Um, but, uh, but we would just say, you know, that time stands still. You kind of lose track of time, that sort of thing. Number six, experience the activity, activity as intrinsically rewarding, meaning you're not just doing it for some gain. Like somebody's, you know, you're not just going to get a pat on the back or some sort of reward for what you're doing. But you're actually doing it because you feel it. You like it. You're, you would keep doing it. Uh, even if nobody was asking you to do it. And then the final three, <clears throat> uh, the um, let's see, uh, being receiving immediate feedback. That's, that's uh, the next one in the list, number seven, meaning you don't have to wonder later if, if this was rewarding to you. You kind of know while you're doing it, and I'm getting feedback, is what I'm doing working? Is it not working? And you're kind of working in that immediate feedback state. Uh, feeling the potential to succeed, so your confidence is there. So again, these are challenging activities. It's not just recreating. You're not just being passive. You're being active. Uh, but you feel like, I could, I could be successful here if I stick with it. And then feeling so engrossed in the experience that others become negligible. You know, you're just not that concerned with other people's opinions or what they're doing. It's not, there's not anything negative or aggressive in that. It's just that I'm so engrossed in what I'm doing that I'm in this, I'm in the zone, I'm in the flow. And uh, I'm feeling optimistic that my efforts are going to pay off. So flow, um, if you're interested, there's a couple of other thoughts. But one thing is, if this is sounding interesting to you, if you think about, like, well, you think about it, Josh. So have you, can you think of a time or a particular kind of setting where where you sometimes feel like you're in the flow? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot that, I mean, if you're doing something for an extended period of time, like mowing the lawn, you can get into a flow state. For me, mm-hmm. like I struggle with meditation so much and so often that it's, it's kind of hard to separate, like you were talking about, playing guitar. Okay, it, yeah. Uh, it, as soon as I sit down and pick up the guitar, immediately my mind's like we're about to spend the next 20 30 minutes doing nothing and just 
and that time just kind of flies by. Oh my and- gosh, it's I, it, it's almost a daily thing at this point. I was thinking that like now that we have the factors to get to a flow state, I feel like a lot of people might struggle with the mindset of even doing something that can get them into a flow state. Like a mm-hmm. lot of people might have like a negative attitude towards anything, which would ob- like automatically kind of like prohibit them from getting into a flow state, mostly like chores or things like that. Like if you're cleaning the house for an hour or you have to for an hour, eventually you're going to hit a state of flow unless you're, you have, if you allow it to happen, right? Like if you, you, I think the key is that first one, which is the mindfulness step being completely engrossed in the moment. So if you're regretting or feeling resentful for what you're having to do, you're not in the moment, right? Yeah. And so practicing mindfulness, which is different than meditation, I like to think of mindfulness as sort of a an active meditation. You're just you're trying to stay focused in the moment that you're in on the activity that you're doing. You can practice that by, you know, um, using your five senses to be in the moment. Like, um, you know, in a garden, for example, you can see, smell, feel, touch all the things that are surrounding you, and just try to be. Uh, observant of your senses in a particular moment. People who practice that then when natural moments come along are more likely to be mindful. And so I think there are, there are activities, maybe for you, it's like the, the playing guitar. There's an activity that sort of triggers a flow state. And that's how we came about to know those nine steps anyway, uh, because they were measuring that randomly in people. But then the key, the, the, the rest of his work before he passed and, and what other people have done in the same field, generally the field's called positive psychology, um, studying the states of flow, is how do we then apply the, the steps of flow to activities that we're doing? So like, oh. can you get into flow, like you were saying, uh, cleaning the house? Can you get into flow in your daily job, the work that you do? Um, can you get into flow in your relationships? And uh, or do you have to just kind of wait till they it randomly appears and, you know, and that that's never what what I would want to do, you know. Right. So we want to be able to do good things on purpose. The analogy I use for people on this sometimes is like dessert. Let's say you go out to a restaurant and uh, it's the one time a year we actually order the dessert. It's just the most amazing dessert you've ever had. You love it just tastes perfect to you. So you could randomly, occasionally stop by that restaurant and and order that dessert again. Or you could bribe the waiter into uh, getting you the recipe. If you had the recipe, then you could make that dessert for yourself when you want it or or when you want to impress your friends. So this is sort of like that. It's like let's get the recipe so that we can do things on purpose instead of just randomly, occasionally falling into an awesome dessert. I, I mean a state of flow. What gets you into the state of flow? Is it looking at van sneakers? <laughs> Actually, there are some times where the, I don't know if that's quite a flow state as much as just a distraction. But, you know, flow includes, you know, you're, you're mindful. You're, you're focused in the moment. Um, you, you have a challenge uh, ahead of you, but you feel confident that you can do it, um, that you feel like your efforts are paying off and you're getting that immediate feedback. And so what does get me into a state of flow? I think I've experienced that um, when I'm outdoors, like hiking before. That's gotten me, you know, if you're challenging yourself to to hike a certain place or do a certain thing, 
Um, in the past, I haven't done it much because I'm getting old, but uh, like trying to learn a new skateboard trick where you realize, oh my gosh, three hours just went by. I'm exhausted, but I finally landed that trick and you didn't even realize the time, you know, went by. Um, I would say also sometimes conversations for me uh, with good friends, with my kids, um, sometimes uh, at work, a good conversation. All of a sudden the time goes by because there was something about it that was challenging and we were working towards some sort of goal in the conversation. So um, I would say I do, after reading about this in graduate school, Flow, there's a book called Flow and his last name is Chick Sent Me High. So if it starts with a C and it looks impossible to uh, to, to pronounce, that's the right book. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't learn how to say his name. Mihai is his first name, Chick Sent Me High. I didn't learn how to say that by reading it because it's impossible. Uh, I had to go on like the Google Translate <laughs> and they pronounce it for you out loud. So I just memorized how it sounds. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a link in the description. So yeah, you don't yeah, have to. It's the craziest, yeah. uh, craziest long name of all time. But, um, you know, there's a book you can read. And after reading that, I, I realized I should try to do that more often, right? And I think people who get in the zone or get into the flow states, um, in a more natural way or, or purposefully, they're the people that seem to like their jobs. You know, they're the, they're the people that seem to really enjoy their activities. Um, gardening would be an example of where you could just be miserable, right? Like you're pulling weeds, it's hot, you know, you're, you're resenting the fact that you're there. Um, or you could say, well, how could I apply these principles to that and get mindful, get uh, challenged, feel excited and confident about what you're doing. And I think this all applies to uh, people in recovery. I see that a lot. We don't, I don't point it out because that might be a little obnoxious, but when people are in our studio telling their story of recovery, you kind of notice that as they start telling the story, their body language and tone of voice will change when they're describing a flow state that was part of their uh, recovery. You know, and and they'll talk about uh, how hard it was, but how rewarding it felt. They'll talk about the people that supported and helped them. They'll talk about having specific goals that they're trying to achieve that weren't easy, but that they did it. And, um, you know, every day one of the steps in flow is immediate feedback. And that kind of goes back to that one day at a time thing. Okay, I did it today. I got some feedback. I made it through the day. Uh, it was tough, but I accomplished it. And then you're moving on to the next day, the next, the next day. And so um, I wanted to point out flow because I think those stories that I read and the stories we hear on the show all the time are good examples of how flow is not just a source of like being happy and content in what you're doing, but flow is usually a part of uh, lasting accomplishments, right? And and being happy is not a product of of recreation. Actually, it's nice to relax. We all work uh, through the week so that we can have some time to relax on the weekend. But um, I wanted to read one more quote uh, about flow, and then maybe we can we can let it go from there. But this quote uh, is Doctor Chick sent me high, and he said, "The best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times." The best moments usually occur if a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. 
I love that. That is so great because uh, we usually think of, you know, happiness is is relaxing or a recreation, right? Being passive, um, enjoying the fruits of our labors. But so much research, um, Martin Seligman's research, Csikszentmihalyi's research, so much research in the field of positive psychology says those times are, are fun, but they're not really the best times. When people actually rate the best times of their lives, the happiest that they ever are, it is when you're active and your body and your mind is stretched to to on, you know, it's voluntary. You're trying to accomplish something and there's a challenge involved. It's not easy, but the key is you feel that it's worthwhile. And so if you're a person in recovery or contemplating being in recovery, think about that for a minute. You know, just kicking back and relaxing can get us into trouble because it's deceptive. We think it's going to be the happiest time of our life, but it's not. And it often becomes associated with drinking or using substances. Uh, but when we're setting, you know, meaningful goals in a voluntary way, and that's another key. Like how many times have people come on our show and said, um, I did it for everybody else and it didn't work. You know, I kept relapsing and I, I really you know, I left the rehab and went right back to using. But when I started doing it for myself, when it was voluntary, that's when it really stuck for me. So I would encourage people to look into the concept of flow, whether or not you uh, think you have a substance use issue or not. Flow is just one of those human principles that if, you know, if you're going to enjoy your life, if you're going to feel like your life was successful, if if you want to be able to look back on lots of times that were really satisfying, I think that we need to be aware of how we can apply steps of flow either to something in, impressive that we want to change, um, like like becoming sober and being in recovery, or just um, if you're feeling less satisfaction with job or relationships or yourself, you know, can we um, apply these principles and, and get in more flow states more often? I think it's worthwhile for all of us. So, so that's that, Josh. That's all I got. What do you think? I think that... Over the if if you've been a fan of the show for a while, you kind of get these processes that can kind of feel like a cheat code, and flow is one of those. I feel like a lot of people can benefit from that kind of thing, and I think we could also spend a month. Of, we could just do four shows of flow. Oh yeah, and yeah. and kind of how to get into the habit of creating better habits for yourself and living a more positive lifestyle. Because I feel like a lot of people who come in here they reach a point where they've they can't feel happiness anymore naturally like mm-hmm. there's the, some of the challenges that they're facing are just so massive that um substances and drugs and alcohol kind of numb a lot of that pain where the last thing they're thinking about is being in flow mm-hmm. they're they're not really looking to uh feel a challenge because they're already feeling so many other challenges so when we talk about flow it's it's such a precursor to getting healthier if you're in a state that's kind of down and, and pessimistic. So it, it every once in a while we get like these cheat codes like flow that if you've never heard of flow, we probably blew your mind this episode. I hope so. so. I hope you'll go check it out and look it up. And in fact, um, I love getting interaction from listeners. So through our Facebook would be a great way if you want to share a story of flow in your own life like you know, moments when you've been in flow, whether it has to do with recovery or not. I think that would be really great. And I'd love to, with your permission, maybe share some of them on the show and future episodes. But um, 
think about doing that because I think we've all had the natural moments of flow and then it's really cool when you can create flow for yourself um, in life. So that's it for today. We uh, will have Casey back with us, of course, at the helm next week. Uh, thanks, Josh, for being my wingman today. Yeah. And I like the cheat code idea. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there you and, go. And uh, this has been Project Recovery. Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.